with an intention to sincerely dedicate oneself to the practice. The Buddha allowed 13 ascetic practices. One of the ascetic practices was to to live in the forest. And there was a a subclass to live in the forest in northern Minnesota in June with mosquitoes in tent. Because these ascetic practices were meant to uh, just kind of add a little bit more challenge. <laughs> Anyone can do a retreat in a comfortable meditation center. But those of you who come out to do the forest retreat at John Tyndall's cabin so real dedication. 
often in our lifestyle in Thailand, we're presented with such a wide variety of practice situations that it's very good for uh, just testing us because uh, in a particular situation we may be able to figure it out and and, uh, develop a certain amount of equanimity, okay, we, you know, we're not totally threatened. But sometimes just changing the environment is enough to throw us off balance. Uh, make us realize that uh, actually the uh, sort of the peace or stability that we were experiencing was maybe because of those specific conditions. But to try to develop a peace, equanimity, happiness, joy that's independent of conditions is a much higher aspiration. For example, if you have a nice comfortable bed in a individual room uh, with your own individual shower and toilet in a meditation center, you feel, oh, I'm so peaceful. (laughs) My meditation's getting really good. I feel so at peace here. But then you're coming out, sleeping on the ground um, with the challenges of weather and small animals. Then... uh, it's good. It's it's good to uh, it's good to to uh, see what that does to us. See where the reactions come. Ajahn Chah was just a master at um, pushing people's buttons. You know, if there was one thing that he was really good at was um, pushing people out of their comfort zone. <clears throat> um, so, for those people who lived with Ajahn Chah, you know, when he was really healthy and thriving, um, it it could be a real tough practice, because just as soon as you're getting comfortable with a particular routine, routine, he can just suddenly say, okay, pack your bags, you're going off to this branch monastery, and you say, oh, no, not that branch monastery, the one with... um, uh, the one the one that's so hot and that has no trees, or the one with the crazy ajahn, or you know the, <laughs> it's like any branch monastery but that. But you had no choice. So here you had a choice, but obviously you probably didn't know what you were getting yourselves into, <clears throat> or it was just a sign of your great dedication. Either way, but. Uh, it can be very useful to just test ourselves out in different situations and say, okay, now how does this affect my practice? How does this affect my state of mind? What does this bring up? Generally, in our communities, we will place equal emphasis on practice in solitude and practice in community because both are useful, both are beneficial, and both tend to bring up different things. Uh, For some people, they just love to go out and practice alone, a little hot, a little bamboo hut on the mountainside overlooking the Mekong River. (sighs) Bliss. And then uh, 
and it may or may not be bliss, but some people find it uh, easier to do that. Other people, it's the last thing they want, or they find it really difficult to be alone, uh, alone with their own minds. I mean, for um, as a generalization, Thai people are, are just scared of to death of ghosts. And so being out in the forest is like really tough, out alone in the jungle. Uh, Westerners are more like afraid of malaria mosquitoes or you know getting bit by a scorpion or a snake, but Thais is like uh, they've been tortured by their by their parents and grandparents when they were small and told all of these ghost stories about ghosts that were going to come and eat their internal intestines out. Uh, so they have this in their subconscious as though it's a real uh, challenge to overcome the fear of to go out and practice alone. It's another one of the ascetic practices is to meditate and live in a cremation ground or burial ground just for that fear of overcoming overcoming the fear of ghosts, coming to terms with um, sense of mortality. But for other people, uh, they just love to live in community. Oh, so wonderful being with other compassionate people. Uh, so the, you know, we're all practicing the Dhamma together. Uh, we're all trying to develop wholesome mind states together. And uh, for other people, it is it's worse than being waterboarded to live with other people, especially a bunch of strangers uh, in a monastery or a meditation hall. And it's, it's just like <clears throat> uh, everything about everyone is just so irritating. And they're wishing for that little hut on the, overlooking the Mekong River. But that's why both are so important. Both are different learning experiences. Nine, Neither is, is better or worse than the other. The most important thing in balance, I can't emphasize enough, is the most important thing in practice, which I can't emphasize enough, is balance. Like I say, the most important thing of balance that I can't emphasize enough is practice. <laughs> That's the great thing about the Dhamma. I mean, it works both ways. <laughs> So balanced practice, or practiced balance, is um, is something that you know we can always be be checking ourselves. You know, what is it that that uh, throws us off balance? What does it mean to be in balance in the first place? Do we do we have an experience of what it means just to be still, with a sense of internal quietude, um, minds not going off balance in the direction of attraction or aversion, greed or anger. Uh, it's not caught up in cycles of delusion. You know, what, is, what does it feel like just to be balanced, stable, kind of in, uh, grounded? You know? Not like uh, caught up in our spinning in our heads, but you know, like grounded. And if we can get a taste of what that feels like, even occasionally, then it's a memory that we can go back to 
and we can check ourselves, now what is it that takes us away from that point? And then we can keep refining it and refining it. So practice in many ways is the art of knowing when to practice in a general, all-encompassing way and knowing when to refine it. But the basic principles still apply either way. You know, there are some times when uh, the stimulus or the... um, whatever it is that's bringing stuff up in us, is strong, so we need, we, it's not going to work maybe just to, to stay at the tip of our nose. You know, we have to kind of step back and have a, a broader, all-encompassing view and, and, uh, and take an honest look at that. And there are other times where we should really you know, take full advantage of the special opportunity that we have being on retreat, for example, where we have the opportunity uh, to really focus in and refine our conscious, refine uh, the meditation object that we're working on, uh, develop a real sense of consistency. Because if everything's going kind of smooth, then it's easy to get a little bit complacent. If you think, well, you know, everything's fine, nothing's really coming up, I feel at peace, everyone around me is so wonderful, um, it's so wonderful being out in the forest. But then also just reminding yourself, well, there's, there still is more to do. And if you, if you experience that, then wonderful, that's a fantastic foundation then for refining consciousness even more, refining it. Uh, and work on increased consistency, work on uh, see how peaceful and refined you can make your meditation. But, you know, you, you just have to work with whatever is coming up. So, if, um, if you're not even close to that, you know, and it will change from day to day, that's not a problem. It's just a matter of, okay, well, this is what's coming up today. This is what's uh, happening for me. Either internally I'm receiving the fruits of old bad karma or or old attachments kind of manifesting, coming to the surface, and I just need to be patient with that. Or maybe the other people around us are somehow mirroring things that bring up irritation in our consciousness. And so we just need to be patient with that. Patient endurance is probably one of the greatest of all of the mental qualities that we can develop in our life. You know, real patience. Patience with other people, patience with ourselves, patience with our rate of uh, achieving enlightenment. That's a good one. You've got, you've got an eon or two to work on that quality. Just patience. Patience. It's like with Ajahn Chah, you know, often that was the thing he would emphasize so much is just patience. Patient endurance. In Pali it's called Kanti, K-A-N-T-I. 
Kanti, it's one of the Baramis, ten Baramis. Kanti Barami, or patient endurance. It's not the kind of thing where you just grit your teeth and endure it, you know, like to try to be macho and sit through pain, because that doesn't really work so well. But to uh, to actually be accepting and patient with things which are difficult and painful or irritating, uh, that's that takes a lot. That really does. Um, to, to completely open up to that, because it's much easier uh, just to get irritated. <laughs> it's a, it doesn't take any any work at all to get irritated. That's the easy response. But um, but to actually take responsibility for whatever reaction we have, like full responsibility, because no one else, no other situation, not even the mosquitoes have the ability to make us irritated. But they can be the stimulus for checking out how peaceful we are. (laughs) And uh, in that way, all the other people, um, the weather, uh, the mosquitoes, everything, can be seen as teachers. They're testing us. It's like, if we don't have Ajahn Chah here to kind of be pushing our buttons, then um, we can rely on our surroundings. We can rely on other other people here. In one of Ajahn Chah's trips to the West, he was asked, well, what meditation technique do you teach? Meaning, uh, you know, you... Vipassana, movement, lifting, moving, you know, rising, falling. You teach some samadhi jhanas. What do you teach? He said, I teach frustration. (laughs) I frustrate people. I frustrate people's desires. It was a good thing Ajahn Chah was so well loved because um, (laughs) you could get away with it. You could get away with doing that to people. <clears throat> so when living in a group then it can bring up a lot of different things one there is uh, a certain amount of responsibility on our own part to try to be sensitive uh, to the group sensitive to other people kind, considerate um, so that we don't um, we don't have to try to push other people's buttons as much as Ajahn Chah. And say, oh, well, Ajahn, Ajahn said, um, I can be other people's teacher, so I'll just be really a, <laughs> as annoying as possible to all these other people. You know, I'll just come in, slam the door, and, and whatever. But, um, no, no. Um, Believe me, even if we really try to be considerate, we'll still make other people irritated. You know, we can't help it. So, uh, but that's, it's a good practice both ways when we're around other people to, to do our best just to try to um, be very considerate of other people's space, considerate of, um, for example, especially in the meditation hall, if someone's meditating, try to shut the door as quietly as possible, try to move as quietly as possible, try to make um, as... F- Try to be as quiet with our body as possible, which is a very good practice in and of itself. 
because we really have to have a lot of mindfulness with the body. First satipatthana, first focus of mindfulness, the body. You know, to really be quiet with the body, we have to really be aware of the body. Uh, everything that the body does, the movements of the body, the coughs, the sneezes, the snoring, you know, whatever that uh, noises that the body does, then um, if we're very, very conscious of the body and how that affects other people, then that's a way that we can show respect to other people, um, consideration, kindness, etc. Then, on the other hand, no matter what anyone else does, even if they're not even trying to be kind or considerate in our perception, then it's, it, it's good just to say, okay, well, this is opportunity for me to, to test. You know? Does it pull me off balance? Apparently, relationships are very good for this. So I hear. <laughs> very good for, for testing people, see if they're in balance or not. Being in a monastery is kind of like being in a relationship with about 20 or 30 other people who you didn't even choose. It's kind of like an arranged marriage. You know, you're just thrown in together with relationships with all these other people, and then you have to uh, deal with it. And, you know, it's a bit like a rock tumbler sometimes, uh, but eventually the, the stones do become quite smooth. And the reason it works is because people have these guidelines of the Dhamma. People have a, a clear guideline, a shared ideal that they're, they're working with. Then uh, the most diverse people can live together in harmony. Sometimes at our monastery in New Zealand, we have uh, people from, like every person's from a different country. You know, out of 15 or 20 people. Uh, and it's amazing we can all live in harmony just because we're all practicing the Dhamma. It's not that you know, we're all the same, obviously not, but uh, we even have sometimes widely varying perceptions you know, that are culturally based. And yet, if everyone's practicing the Dhamma, it's amazing. You know, it is possible to live in harmony. My stepbrothers even come to me for marriage advice, or relationship advice. So how do we live in harmony? I won't go into that in detail, but <clears throat> it's really not that different than being in a monastery. <clears throat> well, in some ways it is, but, but in, uh, in terms of the harmony and balance, and um, you're still dealing with human minds. And uh, whenever we're dealing with human minds, then, then that's, that's where the crux is, that's where the practice is. At that point of old karma arising, this is what presents, it, presents uh, to us right now, and then how we respond to that, that creates our future, moment by moment. So being in a, a situation like this is both, in a sense, group practice, but also we have the opportunity to really focus in 
on meditation. I mean, you think how many factors and conditions it requires to give us an opportunity like this, where we can we can come and actually spend a whole week with no other responsibilities other than to be peaceful. Yeah? I mean, how many people in the world really have an opportunity like that? Yeah? Even those of us who are very fortunate, you know, we all have a lot of good karma, enough good karma to allow us to to come to a situation like this. You know? Still, it, it takes it takes someone like John, it takes someone like uh, Becca and Matt and Fred to be managers, it takes all the people who are working in the kitchen, it takes you know, so many people who have worked hard to make this possible. So go for it. You know, while you're here, there's not really that much you have to do, you know, other than try not to slam the doors. <laughs> 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 you just, uh, uh, you know, it, to whatever you, d- degree you can, just allow your consciousness to refine. Allow your consciousness to refine. And so, um, it doesn't really matter what meditation technique you use, right? But generally, there are certain forms of meditation which are more conducive to the refinement of consciousness. For example, if you're working with the breath, right? let's, say you're, let's say you're working with the breath um, as the breath becomes more refined, then the body becomes more relaxed, the mind will generally become more relaxed, as the body and mind relax, then it affects the breath. The body, the mind, the breath constantly conditioning each other. You know, when the mind changes, the breath changes. When the body changes, the breath changes. When the breath changes, the mind and body change. So these three are always in active, you know, dynamic interaction. So when breath becomes more refined, then it entails a higher degree of responsibility to really stay with it. Because when we have a nice deep breath, maybe initially when we sit down, take a few deep breaths, you can feel the breath all the way down into your abdomen, feeling the feelings in your chest. It's a bit more easy to follow the breath because the sensations are more... um, obvious. But as the body and mind begin to calm, then the breath changes as well, which makes anapanasati, or mindfulness of breathing, a little bit more tricky or difficult than some meditation objects, because it keeps changing. Some meditation objects, you, you know, it just, it's, I, it's the same all the time. Right? The visualization, or a uh, repeating of a mantra. But the breath, as soon as you start to become more relaxed, then the breath becomes even more difficult to follow. It entails even more mindfulness to stay with it. And that continuity is the key. And just watch this place where it's so easy to lose the breath. Like initially, maybe following the breath, it's going well, body, mind start to get relaxed. The uh, breath 
becomes a bit more refined, and then before you know it, mind's off, lost in a train of thought. What happened? It's like that point where the breath started to get more refined entails even more mindfulness, entails like a notching up the attentiveness, just a little bit, just to stay with it. And that's really where um, the process of training mindfulness becomes becomes um, like a, a higher and higher level of training. Mindfulness comes in many, many different degrees. I mean, mindful of external things. You know, every being, every animal has to some degree. But to train mindfulness in a refined degree, a degree that's really necessary for developing samadhi, a degree that's really necessary for refined insight, then you need to train it so that it's being able to, to stay with even a very subtle breath, moment by moment. And so that may mean that you just focus on the nostrils or the area around the tip of the nose. But just try to stay with it. And beware of jumping around from meditation technique to meditation technique. Because for refining mindfulness, for refining consciousness, then it really entails consistency. Again, it doesn't really matter what you use. But be consistent with it. Because if you, let's say you're following the breath, becomes more refined, but then a thought arises, and then you go to a physical sensation, and then... Um, you feel a little irritated and, you th- and a thought arises or a memory arises and go, oh, that brings up anger and then you do a bit of metta meditation and before you know it, the whole tool chest is out there. It's not bad. I mean, they're all good things. But to, uh, to really take full advantage or, or to benefit the most from a situation like this is to be able to just hone in on one type of meditation. Let's say it's the breath, where you just really try to stay with the breath in the most refined way, in the most continuous way. So when we get up from sitting meditation, we may not be able to stay at the nose tip, but that continuity of mindfulness then is so important So you can stay with your breath when you're eating, when you're washing, when you're walking back and forth. Uh, Whatever you're doing, you can stay with the breath. If you're with the breath, then you're more likely to have mindfulness in the body. Be aware of your body. Be grounded. So as consciousness becomes more refined, then it's a bit like the sun coming out from behind the clouds. I don't know, can anyone relate to this metaphor? (laughs) (laughs) Is this like too theoretical? (laughs) This is is like way too Visuddhimaga for me. No, just, it's a bit like, you know, the natural brightness of the mind has been covered over by the clouds of 
all of our junk, all of our mental junk. And then as, as consciousness becomes more refined, uh, a lot of that falls away. And at least some of the brightness, the uh, innate brightness of the mind can start to shine forth. And you can feel like a, a bright mental state. The body will tend to feel light. So if you start experiencing that, even for a moment, recognize that well, this is actually something which uh, is very positive. But the lightness, the brightness, all of that, is also just a byproduct of the continuity of mindfulness. So the most important thing to do is just to stay with the meditation object, whatever happens. Sometimes all sorts of kind of interesting things might arise in consciousness. Visual things, uh, perceptual things in the body, whatever it is, it doesn't really matter. It's not that important. It may be interesting, fascinating, it may be a good sign or a bad sign, it may be conducive to joy or fear or whatever, but just don't go there. If you do, then it tends to be a, a cul-de-sac. It can be an interesting cul-de-sac, but it's not really going anywhere. You just, whatever arises, you just stay with the meditation object. You just stay with the breath. Right? And this is how you can really refine consciousness. I mean, in daily life, outside of a retreat situation, it's very difficult, admittedly, to have the opportunity to practice in, in such a refined way. Right? Because we have responsibilities to relate in a more coarse way. But here, we don't have to. You know, we, Even if we're living in a group, it's almost like we are alone in many ways, because we're not speaking. And um, we don't even have to make eye contact with people. You know, we, can, we can just stay with our meditation, stay within the, um, you know, the awareness around us. Now it's time for me to go to my fortune cookie again. I'm really indebted to Matt to bringing me to this Chinese restaurant. <laughs> I can't remember the last time I got a fortune cookie. I mean, this is... Maybe they're all good, but this one was, this was good. So, the principal business of life is what? No, no, you're keeping silence. <laughs> is, is to enjoy it. To enjoy it. So, a little bit of happiness, lightness, brightness starts to happen in meditation. What's the wise response? Oh my God, I feel so guilty. I don't deserve this. Oh, I'm, I'm going to get attached to this. This is sinful. Right? Even if those thoughts do arise, then just be aware, that's just cultural conditioning. <laughs> it's neither good nor bad, but it's not conducive to deepening the meditation. Right? 
There are certain types of happiness that the Buddha definitely encouraged. Right? A happiness that comes from within, a happiness that's arising from continuity of mindfulness, joy that arises from the mind becoming serene. Right? You know? Happiness that arises from the mind being peaceful. I mean, this is, this is a, what the practice is all about, right? At least at certain stages. No one's saying that this is the end of the path, but it's a very important step to be able to allow ourselves to, to, to fully open up to being happy. Right. And some people may say, "Well, I, you know, I, I'd love to be happy, but there's just too much. <laughs> there's not enough happiness coming up in my mind." So, well, be patient. But you know, happiness and unhappiness are relative. So, when the intense suffering ceases a little bit, calms down a little bit, then that's like happiness. <laughs> It's more happy. It's less suffering. And each stage of practice is this dynamic of when, when our mind becomes more purified, at least temporarily in meditation, temporarily purified, then to whatever degree we're not experiencing greed, hatred, and delusion, and it, all of its minions, then uh, we're going to experience sense of freedom and, and happiness. And, uh, and allowing ourselves to feel that, deeply feel that, I think is very important. Also, it encourages us to um, meditate more, if we actually are enjoying the meditation. It's not like we have to force ourselves to meditate. We can actually... Uh, you know, we're drawn to it. The mind, you know, wants to, to go towards a more refined happiness. If, if the only source of happiness we ever have known is getting drunk and watching the NBA or something similar, then, then we may be skeptical. You know, you don't want to give that up. But if you discover, oh, actually getting drunk and watching hockey is even better. <laughs> See, that's karma. That's right. <laughs> karma. Um, it's a refine, a refinement of consciousness, <laughs> and then uh, um, where was I? Hockey. Hockey. <laughs> yeah. Well. <clears throat> We're on a baseball season, so I better change my metaphors. <laughs> so as as um, the mind is always inclining towards happiness and peace. It's like that more than anything else, it, it craves that. It's just that we're not skillful enough in finding that. When, when, when the, the average deluded, untrained person is just not very good at, at, at finding happiness. Right? You know, like, 
really long-term sustaining happiness. I mean, some people kind of figure it out on their own. Or some people just seem to have a natural, you know, um, not too many obstacles in that regard. But for a lot of people in life, it's just so difficult. It's not like they're not trying to be happy. It's just that it just never seems to work. It's like looking in the wrong places, um, doing the wrong things, always searching for happiness, leading to suffering in the end. It's like, what's, what's the deal? But there is an inclination towards happiness in the mind. And if you discover a little bit of peace, a little bit of lightness, brightness in your meditation, then uh, there's a part of the mind which naturally will recognize, oh, well, that's kind of nice. That's, uh, that's even better than getting drunk and watching the NBA and hockey at the same time. <laughs> and, and then you don't have to force yourself to let go, because you can't really force yourself to let go of anything. I mean, you can, but it, you haven't really let it go, right, if you have to force yourself. But um, it's just natural. If we discover a, a happiness which is a bit more refined, a bit more satisfying, than what we've known before, than, than what we used to think of as happiness, by comparison, is suffering, or is less happy, less desirable. And we think, oh yeah, I could let go of that, because now I've got this. And so the process of training the mind in, in this regard is a way of uh, gradually refining happiness all the way through. I mean, the whole process of developing concentration is all about letting go of the coarser factors. You gradually let go of the coarser factors. Um, the things which initially just seemed like great happiness. As the mind becomes even more refined, you see, oh, well, that that effluent, or no, that, uh, that great rapture that's coming up. Oh, well, that's a bit disturbing compared to just the calm joy. And then the calm joy may even be a bit disturbing compared to just pure equanimity. And even, you know, from there you can even refine it further. So, getting wise about happiness helps, and it makes the, the practice a joyful one, so that we, we don't come to practice with the attitude of, all right, this is going to be a hard grind, needs discipline, uh, have to let go of everything that I like, uh, I should be like this and I should be like that. You know, it can be really hard on ourselves. And then, and then when when difficult things arise or we're not the way we, we think we should be, then we can be self-critical and then, you know, just, you know, what kind of karma do we make when we're self-critical? You know, we're creating more of that. Whatever we put our attention on gets stronger. You know, if we put our attention on, on being self-critical, it gets stronger. It becomes a habit that just so easily the mind falls into over and over and over again. 
So to kind of, you know, to recognize that whenever it happens. And then not to be self-critical about being self-critical. Oh, there I am being self-critical again. I really, I'm so stupid (laughs) for being self-critical. Oh, there I am being self-critical again. I hate myself for being, oh, that's anger and hatred. That's, God, I've got so much defilement. It's hopeless. I'm going to get in a downward spiral. But just sort of cutting it off, saying, okay, whatever happens, self-criticism, never mind. Back to the breath, whatever it is. Um, praise, oh, I'm really getting somewhere in meditation. Whoop, just recognize that. It's just distractive thought. It's going to pull you away from the meditation object. Just back to the breath. Whatever it is, uh, however you perceive the meditation, it's important just to, you know, just kind of cut those thoughts off. Keep coming back. Keep coming back. Now, in refining mindfulness, if you're really trying to stay with one meditation, then even other meditation techniques will be considered a distraction. So, in this day and age, it's just so easy to have done, well, you know, did a few Kawanka courses, uh, you know, followed by years of Shikantaza, and then maybe a few Tibetan visualizations, and um, of course a little metta practice and uh, some Mahasi Vipassana and oh we'll just sit down and see what happens and what happens is the mind's just kind of going to go not sure where to go right it'll just kind of bounce around these different influences that we've had you know and that's that's it's a great thing to have so much information at our disposal but uh, the drawback or the, the thing to watch out for is when we really want to train the mind, we just have to say, okay, I'm just going to focus on one thing. Whatever it is, just, you know, you take that and refine it. So if you're focusing on your nose tip and you want to develop uh, deeper levels of samadhi in order for developing deeper levels of insight, then it's going to be necessary um, not to allow the mind to go to physical sensations, not allow the mind to, to you know, start having um, compassion for all sentient beings at that time, right? Uh, even really good things at that time would be considered a distraction. So you just try to focus in on one thing. The process of uh, refining consciousness in that sense is a movement towards unity, you know, uh, unifying the mind. Normally consciousness is very split up uh, between our sense activity, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, you know, physical sensations, and definitely all of our mental stuff. It's like our consciousness is just so fractured with all of this. And uh, developing samadhi is a way of bringing the, uh, a mind back to a place of unity. So one-pointedness doesn't mean like crunching your mind down to a little point on your nose tip, even though that may be where our, our attention is, is paying, is noticing. Still, the general condition of, of samadhi is an expansiveness. 
an expansionness of mind, um, kind of a, a peaceful stability, an openness, uh, a unifying quality. So that's important to keep in mind, and it will be very, very clear. If it's right samadhi, of the Noble Eightfold Path, there will be very clear mindfulness. Anytime that it starts to become a bit foggy, dark, say peaceful, but, but dark and sleepy, then you might want to just check, you know, stop, um, bring up more clarity of attention. You can almost kind of bring up brightness. You know, just if it gets, if the mind state becomes too heavy, then you may even need to just stop, open your eyes, and then kind of start again. Also, if you notice in concentration that um, it's just becoming a bit too intense, you know how we put forth effort is just so important. And if we're trying too hard. It's like we can get all tight. You know, it's like we're trying to trying to focus, trying too hard. But right effort is actually more just like um, relaxing, and at the same time keeping uh, a refined awareness. It's a, it's a strange balance, because normally we think of you know, putting forth effort as something you can kind of a, get the muscles into, or at least the mental muscles. But in this way, it's a, it's a way of relaxing, but at the same time not relaxing and the mind spacing out. If the mind starts to space out, then again, notice that it's gone off balance. Check, okay, and bring it back, meditation object. So in this way, meditation is a constant challenge because the mind's just always wanting to go off balance. You know? It's just had so many years of not being in samadhi that it's just uh, the, the habits are so strong to pull it off balance one way or another. So it does take kind of a moment by moment, a very careful watching, right? but not a stressful watching, not something that... In, 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 you know, it's going to bring up a sense of tension, but, but a watching which is allowing the mind just to settle, uh, to open up, uh, to be relaxed, and to be freed. When the mind actually does become absorbed in meditation object, becomes unified, when, there, when the mind actually is one, the Buddha referred to that as a liberation liberation of consciousness, in the same way that he would refer to full enlightenment as liberation. It's just that it's a temporary liberation of consciousness. Anytime that the mind becomes unbounded, temporarily it's freed from all of the defilements. But, of course, that's a liberation that's based on causes and conditions. And when those causes and conditions cease, the meditation comes to an end, all the roots of the defilements are still there, and they gradually start to pop up again. But, like I say, if you, if you get enough of a taste of even temporary liberation, 
then you realize that's even that's even better than the NBA. Right? That's even better than uh, just being relatively peaceful. That's even better than uh, sustaining, you know, your your concentration on your nose tip and feeling bliss and rapture. That's you know, temporary liberation. Once you, if you've experienced something close to that, then mind nat- just naturally wants to go in that direction. And then that's when you really start to live a, a, a spiritual life. I'm not saying you have to experience absorption or jhana before you, you can live that way, but that's one of the reasons that developing refinement of consciousness can be so beneficial. You start to taste something that's possible. You know, even if it's just brief, it's, then you know it's possible. And you think, what would it be like if that wasn't just temporary liberation, but that was full-time liberation? Not based on causes and conditions, but beyond causes and conditions. So I offer this for your reflection this evening. I thought maybe I would answer some of the questions now. Dear Rajan, for the record, it was really my responsibility to bring the cushion, not Matt's piece. (laughs) (laughs) Really, it's good of you to take responsibility. (laughs) Shows integrity. (laughs) Next question, okay. In the morning chat, homage to the Sangha, it mentions the four pairs, the eight kinds of noble beings. These are the Blessed One's disciples. Who are these four pairs? Oh, well, let's see. There's Becca and Fred, and there's... there's <laughs> no, no. Okay. There's um, uh, the four pairs of the eight kinds of beings correspond to the four stages of enlightenment. There are the... Um, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but the Buddha talked about different levels of enlightenment, kind of a natural unfolding of the mind. tends to happen in certain stages. first one is called Sotapanna, or uh, stream entry. next one is Sakadagami, or once returning. Next is Anagami, non-returning. And then Arhantship, full enlightenment. And then you have those on the path to Sotapanna and those who realize the path of each one of these stages. So you take these four stages and then the ones who are on the path and ones who have realized the fruit of that path are the eight. (laughs) 
I would enjoy a talk on the emptiness. <laughs> Too late. I've already given the talk today. <laughs> Maybe tomorrow. I don't plan what I'm going to talk about, but seed has been planted. Ajahn, I'm starting to see a bunch of bright lights. <laughs> Me too. I'm so grateful. Too. This is like it'd be like. God, that's right. My meditation's getting so good. It's so Bunch of bright lights popping everywhere. Should I stick to the breath or take up the lights for an object? Pretty good of me to answer that question yeah. already. <laughs> okay, stay with that meditation object no matter what happens, especially bright lights, no matter how enticing they are. Just stick with the breath. Dear Ajahn, attachment theory in psychology says that for people to feel safe and happy, they must have a secure attachment to another person. This theory applies to both children and adults. How does a monastic single person get these needs met? And question two, is attachment to other people skillful or unskillful according to the Buddha's teachings? Question three. <laughs> How does one practice non-attachment with people we love. P.S. I love you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay. Um, attachment theory in psychology says that for people to feel safe and happy, they must have a secure attachment to another person. This is... No, I'll be, I'll be polite. Um, <clears throat> I, uh, well, there, there are different levels of happiness, and there are different levels of, of feeling safe and insecure. I think that any person who can have a loving relationship, a uh, good relationship with children or, or not having children, and um, generally very happy and kind of attached, you know, attached with a sense of love and care, you're doing pretty well, right? I mean, you know, don't, don't worry about feeling, oh, I'm attached to my, you know, I'm so in love, I'm attached to my partner. So, well, you know, <clears throat> see, first of all, see how long that lasts. And, but even if it does last, you know, great. I mean, it could be much worse. <laughs> 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 
Just ask other people. <laughs> you, you, know, you say, well, I'm so worried about being so in love and attached to the person I'm with. You say, you're so lucky. <laughs> I'm going through a divorce. Um, so there's different levels. You know, there, uh, it depends how far you want to take the practice. But uh, being attached to people we love, I think, is is probably you know a skillful way to be in the world as a start. Much much better than being in the world motivated by greed, motivated you know not happy in our relationship to other people, being motivated by competition, uh, a lot of anger and resentment. You know, that's obviously not not very conducive or beneficial to anybody. But um, you know, if if we are able to find a uh, relationship that is actually working quite well, then use that relationship, use that family situation as your monastery. Uh, like I said before, even if you, you know, even if you've got the perfect relationship. It will change. You know, it's just basic law. <laughs> you know, it, it may be perfect at one time, but then you've got two people who are constantly changing, and for them to change at the same rate and the same ways over a period of years, you know, that, that's that's pretty rare. So there's always, or almost always, there's going to be an opportunity for um, practicing with not getting what we want. Right. You know, it's just it's just unrealistic to think that even if we have a, a wonderful situation, to think that we're always going to get what we want, all of our so-called needs met. You know, if we if if that's our expectation in life, then we're going to experience a lot of d- disappointment. But even if you have a really good, well-balanced way of uh, relating to uh, partners and family then um, it's the only, well, it's just a basic law of the more we grasp onto something, the more we kill it, right? Especially with something that is really pleasant and good, even if it's our meditation, you know, if, if some rapture starts to come up in meditation and we try to grab onto it, then we kill it, and the meditation starts to deteriorate. Uh, if a uh, um, relationship, romantic or non-relation, romantic, is going really well with someone else, and we start to grasp onto it, try to hold it, don't want it to change, want to keep it this way forever, then we, we start to kill it. You know, it, it starts to deteriorate. So really, the only way for relationships to work uh, long-term is through a sense of letting go. You know? Letting go, uh, being accepting, being patient, being uh, forgiving, all of these qualities that we keep talking about in Dhamma practice right, is, is really what um, makes, makes it possible for human beings to live in harmony. And it's, it's no small thing for human beings to learn to live in harmony. Sometimes it's surprisingly difficult. 
So even if one's in a monastery, then uh, we still have these same challenges. You know, we still have to learn how to uh, get along with other people. We still have to um, develop kindness. We still have to be patient with people. We still have to learn how to uh, care about people even if we don't like them. Right? Even if we don't like someone, they're still deserving of our loving kindness and metta just as much as the people we like. So um, this is the challenge, no matter what lifestyle we lead. But any time we're dealing with other people, this is the way we have to learn how to live in harmony. I wouldn't say that in the end you need another person. Uh, I've seen... I've met a number of people who seem perfectly happy and uh, and there's self-contained happiness. All of their happiness comes from within. They don't they don't they need they don't need another person per se for that. But it really depends on you know, what level we're at. So in the end, just make you know. Do the best with where you're at. If you if you do have a family and relationships and partners, and then uh, you know, just try to make that as good as possible, as harmonious and, and happy as possible. Another one from Becca. This is my goodness. That's not from me. I don't know what that is. Oh, that was from earlier. Oh, that was from earlier. You can just oh, we forget this one. I think so. It's not really from Becca. I won't tell you who it's from. (laughs) (laughs) Bio forms for all the participants are in the yellow envelope on the table in the living room. Question two. Okay, never mind. Dear Ajahn, I love you so much and I miss you when you're not here. <laughs> Signed, John Tendall. <laughs> no, I'm just, just kidding. <laughs> Question, I will rely on your guidance in this. I am sorry. Would this be like page two of a... Maybe there's a page one somewhere. I'll keep that just for reference. Perhaps the emptiness. The, the emptiness. The emptiness one. That's, that's, that's on this side. Done. Right. Okay, here's page one. See, mine wasn't the longest. Dear Ajahn, I am the unmindful yogi who let fly who let fly the Amen during your Dhamma talk tonight. (laughs) Lord be praised. I only realized what I had done many seconds later. It's quite an experience to 
embarrass oneself so boldly right in front of your esteemed teacher and beloved fellow yogis. It promised or provided the opportunity to explore humility and forgiveness. I wish to make such, an, uh, such acknowledgments and apologies as would be helpful and appropriate both to you and my brothers and sisters. I will rely on your guidance in this. I am sorry. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Not a problem. If you want, intention is an important thing. If you want to yell out, Amen, it's fine. It's not, no problem. I mean, there's probably certain things I might take offense at, but you could, you, it could test me. Really? <laughs> Yeah, I'm a forest monk. I'm up for a challenge. Yeah, once I've made peace with the mosquitoes, then try yelling things at me from the back of the room, for example. Well, I mean, when uh, Martin Luther King used to give talks, people in the audience would go, Lord, be praised! You know, you know just a spontaneous arising of joy. You could do a Buddhist version of that. You said, Buddha Dhamma Sangha, be praised! <laughs> you know, whatever comes up, it's fine, but uh, please know that saying Amen was in no way offensive. Ajahn, when you're focusing on the breath and you feel joy and peace arises, is it okay? Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry, I didn't finish. Is it okay to talk on the feeling of something joy as the object itself or and abandon the breath? Okay, I think I understand this. Um, so yeah, this relates to what I was talking about earlier. Let's say we are meditating. Continuity, continuity of uh, mindfulness is happening. No uh, strong old results of bad karma are arising. You're starting to feel some happiness and contentment just being with the breath. Some peace arises. You're feeling some joy. And... Should you take that joy as a meditation object? At this point, I would say, no, not yet. You'll still be aware of it, but you don't, don't take it as the primary meditation object. I know, I know what you mean, and it's not like it's bad or wrong to take that as a meditation object, you know, just feeling the joy, you know, both you know, physically and, and emotionally. But... It's more like then you, you take your mind off of the causes and you put it on the effects. Right? The cause for the joy to arise is the continuity of mindfulness on, on the breath or the meditation object. And so to, to, to deepen it, to take it to the next step, uh, to make it more and more profound, then yeah, really try to, um, to stay on the meditation object. Don't worry, you, you will, uh, you'll be aware of of those positive effects of meditation going well, success in meditation, uh, kind of on the periphery. 
What is the distinction between contemplation and meditation? Is contemplating done while meditating? You know, is contemplating the practice of examining the experience after meditation? Again, it depends on how you use words, um, but the relationship between calming the mind and bringing it to unity and then understanding life, understanding the nature of our body and mind, uh, developing wisdom through, through investigation, through clear seeing. They're so intertwined, it's, uh, theoretically you can split them apart. This is samatha, calming, and this is vipassana, insight. Um, and you can have long, long arguments about the relationship or you know, what's more important than the other, but in, in reality, just as the heart unfolds, I mean, I just see they're, they're so interrelated. As, as soon as a bit of tranquility starts to arise and you get more clear seeing, you get more wisdom starts to kick in. As soon as uh, some insight happens, it naturally leads to some letting go, which leads to more peace of mind. They're just so intertwined. Uh, there are times when you can focus more consciously and wholeheartedly just on refining consciousness, as I've been talking about tonight. Or you can focus wholeheartedly on just uh, investigating body, feeling, perceptions, uh, thought formations, consciousness, in terms of anicca dukkha anatta, their impermanence, uh, the inability to fully satisfy, the fact that they're uh, arising and passing away in a, w- in a way which we can't really hold on to as ourself. Right? So you can, uh, you can, you can emphasize one or the other. But even when you're emphasizing one or the other, it only really works if you, if you have both working together. So, in the end, you, uh, you can separate them, you can talk about them in different ways, and that's useful, but in practice, um, you just have to watch how the mind unfolds and you see how interrelated they are. Okay, so that's the end of the questions for this evening. just want to encourage people again... Um, you know, really stay with this meditation, have confidence and trust in it, because it uh, has the ability to go very, very deep. I mean, deeper maybe than we consciously realize. And even if it seems like maybe nothing special happening, just allowing your mind to, to stay with the breath in a relatively calm and content way. Uh, does a lot below the surface. Very, very beneficial, very purifying. Okay, thank you very much. So we have about 15 more minutes before we end this evening.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.